as we jump back into our series in Colossians. We're nearing the end here, and our reading is Colossians chapter 3. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll double back on, uh, on verse 17, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, and we will read through chapter 4, verse 1. So again, uh, Colossians, uh, beginning at, at chapter 3, verse 17, let us give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Sometime back, one of my children got a, a little toy drone. One of those flying things, right? Kind of like a helicopter, remote control helicopter. And uh, the instruction manual of this drone they got was, you know, if you've never flown a drone before, you don't really know what you're doing, you don't want to fly it higher than six feet high. Right? It makes sense. Uh, what's the hardest part of flying? It's landing the plane, isn't it? It's not having your, your drone uh, crash into a tree. Well, about a couple minutes after playing with this drone, uh, let me ask you, is it very much fun flying a drone only six feet high? Of course not. And so within that couple of minutes span, I don't know if there was a gust of wind or what happened, but all of a sudden that little drone went up in the air and, and, and soon enough it landed on the second story roof of one of our neighbors, never to be retrieved because I'm not climbing on my neighbor's roof with a ladder to get this drone. It's not a good flight unless you've landed the plane. That's my proverb for you guys. I like flying. I'm not, I'm not afraid of flying. I, I, I enjoy air tra travel for the most part, but I have to confess every time those wheels hit the ground, feels good, doesn't it? Feels good to land the plane. Now, I'm starting here because I think the flying metaphor makes a lot of sense with the book of Colossians. We've been cruising at 10,000 feet looking at like all of these glorious realities of who Jesus is. We've looked at how all of these realities begin to, to impact who we are in him. And now, as we're dealing with these very mundane relationships, what's Paul doing? He's landing the plane. And it's important to land the plane. I think too often, maybe especially in our circles, we're in these kind of Reformed and, and Presbyterian circles. I'm not sure if we're always good at landing the plane. We're good at crashing the plane. Right? We can crash the plane easily enough, but can we land the plane in terms of seeing how the gospel really impacts our everyday lives and relationships that we have, as Paul says in Galatians, Christ formed in us. Well, that's what Paul's doing here. He's, he's seeing, he's helping us to see what it looks like to have Christ formed in us. And so our passage is working out of what we saw a couple weeks ago. We read it this morning, even though it's kind of detached from where we are. Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, 
Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And in verse 18, it picks up where Paul addresses wives. Now from the outset, we need to acknowledge this is a hard passage. There's a lot in this passage that needs to be qualified and and put in its original context. Now, these words were heard differently in Colossae 2,000 years ago than they're heard today in Southern California. I think that's the first point we want to put on the table. That's a very true point, isn't it? That's the art of hermeneutics. That's kind of a word you you hear a lot in, in, in biblical studies where it's all about understanding the text. And it's that very simple point. The church in Colossae 2,000 years ago hears these words so differently than we hear them today. A lot of harm has been done by not taking into account that original context. And so the idea of submission has been used to excuse domineering and abusive behavior. Paul's address to slaves has been used by, by slaveholders to justify the kind of slavery practiced in this country where by virtue of someone's skin, they are mere property and they're mere chattel. Every generation, friends, is at risk of twisting God's word for our own purposes. And the faithful response isn't just to sweep it under the rug as if it doesn't matter. It's instead remembering and reminding one another that God sees when his word is twisted and he takes it very serious. He won't be used for our purposes. He won't be mocked. And so we need to try to unpack how this church 2,000 years ago heard these words, but we also need to see uh, how does the Holy Spirit apply these truths to our lives today. We believe this word is alive and it's active for us. Well, we preach verse by verse through the Bible for a reason here at CPC, at least ordinarily. We don't get to pick and choose the passages we prefer or or emphasize those passages that that we would rather uh, preach from. Uh, Instead, I've heard it said this way, the way that we treat the parts of the Bible we don't really like, that actually shows whether or not we believe the scriptures are the word of God. And I think we're doing a little bit of that this morning as well. And so we come to our passage, and, and we see that we are called and we are empowered after everything that we've seen in Colossians so far to serve and to love one another. This is the first and really primary application of what it means to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So three points this morning, just these three relationships that we look at. What does marriage in the name of the Lord Jesus look like? What does family life in the name of the Lord Jesus look like? What does work life in the name of the Lord Jesus look like? And and I understand we may not all share these particular roles and vocations, but hopefully there's enough that we can apply these truths and these general ideas and themes to wherever God has called us. Now, before digging into the specific areas of life Paul goes into, uh, we have to make sure we see these specific duties in light of everything that has come prior in this letter. Remember, for every Christian, a definitive change has taken place. The language that I've been using throughout this series is that if you are in Christ, you have received the fullness of God in him. When you receive Christ in your life by faith, when you put your trust in him, you received absolutely everything needed for life with God and growth in godliness, for salvation, for the forgiveness of sins. And so any growth and maturity which the new creation will have, the new creation in Christ will pursue that growth and maturity, but it's not from adding on to who we are in Christ. It's not from adding to what saved us. It's instead, it's living out of those realities. It's living as if these realities were true. 
because you are already full in him. You're united to Jesus. When you put your trust in Christ, you are so united to him that, that what is true of Jesus is also true of you. So you are, you are dead to your sins, but you have done no dying yourself. He died for you. You have been raised to new life, even though you, you have not really been resurrected in your existence. We believe that will happen, but already you're, you're considered. God says you're reckoned. I acknowledge you to be risen in Jesus. You are seated with Christ where he is now in the heavenlies. And so start living right now as who by grace you already are in Christ. That's so crucial. The verdict that you have, right, innocent, vindicated in Jesus, that's an end times verdict that you start living out of right now in union with Jesus. And where does this begin to take place? In your relationships. In your relationships. That's where the Christian life is lived out, primarily in relationship. If you live by yourself in the woods and you spend a lot of time reading the Bible and theology books and you talk about all of these regular times of prayer, I don't think we're supposed to be that impressed. Because the Christian life is not lived by yourself lived in relationship. Think of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If someone is all alone in the woods and tells me they are patient and gentle and kind, okay. No, they only mean something in relationship to another. In Colossians, Paul says, put on the robes of Jesus. And what does that look like? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. What does that need? You need a one another if you're going to bear with them. So all of your relationships must be marked by this union that you have. All of your relationships have to be influenced by who you already are in Christ. Paul says it looks like this. It looks like this in your most ordinary relationships. So the first point we're going to look at is marriage in the name. Now, I'm going to spend the most time on this point. It is not because it's the most important. It's because this is the one that culturally I think we hear and have to wrestle through the most. So that's the reason more attention will be given here. It is not that, that it's more important or has more emphasis. It's more a matter of this hits our culture in a way that's a little bit different, right? First application of Paul 3.18, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now I know enough about my audience. I know you guys enough to know that this kind of verse lands differently, for some of you, you think this is, this is great, this is, this is exactly how God is, has instituted the order, this, this doesn't strike me as odd at all. For others of, of you, it, it kind of rankles you, right? It feels patriarchal, it, it feels misogynistic, it, there's, a, there's a tinge of sexism that just kind of grates on you and it kind of irritates you. Now I would argue it sounds this way to many for good reason. Because this kind of passage has been used to justify a heck of a lot of sin and ungodliness. And yet we also have to understand that this passage would have been controversial in Paul's day. Paul's using a passage uh, that's, that's a, a well-known form. It's called a household code. And you can find these all over the ancient world. Just about every philosopher took a stab at a household code. And they're basically contending this is how an ordered society looks. And the point was to set out relationships, right? This is what a, a good and just family looks like, a good and just society, a good and just economy. Everything in a household code at this time would be about bringing honor to the patriarch. 
Uh, my New Testament professor in seminary said, if you want to understand what the first century looked like, just go watch The Godfather. All right, so the first 40 minutes of The Godfather are just people in the community coming to pay their respects to The Godfather. He is the patriarch. He is the pater familias. Everything in that community is either toward the honor of that patriarch or it's for the shame. It's an honor-shame society. We don't live in that kind of society. We live in a rights-based society, which means that the question we're bringing to the text is, what am I allowed to do and what am I not allowed to do? It's a different question. It's a different society. So that's the difference where we're coming to the text. Let's unpack what these exhortations mean. What does Paul mean when he calls upon wives to submit to husbands? Well, first of all, what does he not mean? He doesn't mean that all women are to submit to all men. This is specifically about a wife living in submission to her husband in this very particular relationship of covenant commitments that reflect ultimately, and we know this from the household code in Ephesians, which is a parallel text, Ephesians 5, we know that very specific relationship, it glimpses the relationship of Jesus and his church. It doesn't mean that the wife is of lesser value or dignity than her husband, Submission certainly doesn't mean giving unqualified obedience. In fact, if you looked at household codes from the first century and before and after, typically a wife is called to obey her husband, but notice Paul does not say that women or wives are supposed to obey their husbands. Children obey their parents, slaves their masters, and we'll have to come back to that, but wives are not called to obey their husbands. In fact, in the Book of Common Prayer, which is the Church of England's prayer book, and it's given us our wedding liturgy. So even if you you go listen to a movie and they have a wedding scene, it's usually that basic form. In, In the Book of Common Prayer, and this most controversial line has been taken out of most wedding ceremonies, but to the bride, wilt thou obey him, serve him, love, honor, and keep him in sickness and in health? I think that's a bad vow. The New Testament never calls on wives to obey, and this is important because submission doesn't mean a wife would never question or disagree with her husband. It especially doesn't mean that a wife would, would be subjected to the abuse of her husband. Right? This, 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 it's just a, a, a PA right now. Like as, as a church, as leaders of this church, as a session, if you are ever in a position where you're being abused, would you please come speak to us? Uh, we don't believe that God ever wants people to be in a position of abuse. That is a terrible manipulation of this passage, which only only enables sin. Submission certainly never means abuse. It's never what Paul intended. And so what is submission? It's something given voluntarily by the wife. It's never demanded by the husband. Biblical submission is the act of giving a gift. What's the model of biblical submission? I think it's Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks of the son, same word here, being in submission to the father, in particular in the act of redemption for the purpose that God might be all in all. So for 2,000 years, here is orthodox theology. The son is equal in power and glory to the father. He is co-eternal. He is fully divine. The Nicene Creed, he is God of God, light of lights, very God of very God. And yet he gives the gift of himself in order to redeem a people to the glory of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's what submission is. That's the picture of it. You can't see it in your translation, but in Greek, it's in this weird middle voice, which means something like, wives, submit yourselves. 
Doug Moo, a very conservative commentator, he writes this. He says, submission suggests a voluntary willingness to recognize and put oneself under the leadership of another. So why this submission? Why are wives called to do this? Well, the reasoning in Colossians is that it's fitting to the Lord. Now, what makes this fitting? You have to flip to uh, to Ephesians, which I think helps fill out this picture, is that this picture of husband and wife, again, is something that is glimpsing a better relationship of Jesus and his relationship to the church. That's going to inform how we understand love too, isn't it? Husbands love your wives. Because Jesus' leadership looks like laying down his life for his bride. I think there's a scene in the Gospels which, which can speak into this, which is toward the end of the Gospels. Jesus is with his disciples and the mother of James and John comes up to Jesus and, and she says, you know, when you establish your kingdom, I want my boys right next to you. And Jesus says, you're missing the entire point. And he says this, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. That's how the world understands leadership. But how does Jesus understand leadership? The son of man has come, he says in Matthew 20, not to be served, but to serve. So you have a wife giving herself to the leadership of a husband who is striving to love in a self-giving, sacrificial way. And this will look different in different marriages. I think nine times out of 10, you hear a speaker or an author talk about a biblical picture of marriage or a biblical picture of gender and marriage. And nine times out of 10, I think that's conservative. It's just their opinion. It's just their particular culturally conditioned opinion of what that looks like. Because here in this passage, what does Paul say? He just gives us the principle. He doesn't go into detail of what this looks like. He could have gone into detail, but he doesn't. And I think that's important. Different factors determine what this looks like in particular marriages. But here's what it looks like. It looks like the giving of a gift to your husband that is called to love his bride in a way that looks like Jesus' love for the church. A love that's commanded. A love from husbands that's not a mere feeling. It's not this kind of warm and fuzzy idea. It is an act of the will to model Jesus and his love for the church. Paul is calling husbands to radical others-centeredness. You would not find that in any other household code. He's calling husbands to love. To lead in such a way that models the leadership of Jesus who came to serve and not be served to give his life for his bride. Paul says here's a particular temptation if you want to grasp hold of leadership like the Gentile rulers do is that selfishness looks like being harsh. To use your role in a selfish way, but Paul says this is not the way of Jesus. A husband is to love and serve his wife. A husband is to love his wife in the way of Jesus, to lay his life down for his bride. The last thing I'll say here is I think there's a way where we don't want to talk about biblical marriage in the same way or maybe as a synonym of traditional marriage. Now, I understand that in 2022, I think we can speak affirmingly of traditional marriage, and I think most of us know what that looks like, Christian, non-Christian. We understand that there is a, uh, uh, it, it means something to talk about traditional marriage, but I think what we want to hear more than anything is that this is as far away from traditional marriage as anything else, in the sense of biblical marriage always speaks into the culture in a way that is prophetic against whatever marriage looks like. If traditional marriage has, has looked like domineering behavior, it speaks into that. If, 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 if biblical marriage speaks into a kind of free-for-all where marriage and commitment doesn't mean anything, it means something profound for that as well. 
Because it's always the glimpse, right? If it's mirroring Jesus and, and the church, it's always a glimpse of a distant kingdom that looks odd in the kingdoms of this world. Now again, that was my longest point. Marriage in the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul moves on to family life. He addresses parents and children. Children first, of course. Uh, we see here that the Lord provides for children to be loved and cared for through the loving authority of parents. And so Paul very, very plainly says, and kids, especially perk up right now because he's addressing you. This word is for you. In chapter 3, verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Now here's my message for kids this morning. This is the message for you. You have the ability to minister to your parents. You have the ability to serve your parents. You have the ability to, to not only do that because you're supposed to, but because, and so many of, of, of you young people confess to me, you say, I know that Jesus died for my sins. That's a great start. And the rest of your Christian life is basically living life in gratitude to your Savior, right? Jesus died for me. What, what wouldn't I do for him? And the call for kids is to obey your parents. Will your parents always get it right? Nope. Will they always lead well? No. But you experience the love and care of the Lord through your parents. God calls you to obey them for your good. And when you do this, right, it is pleasing to your Savior. It's, ple it's pleasing to Jesus himself. That's what service looks like. It doesn't look like using or manipulating your parents. And I think we all know what that looks like too. It's the temptation to obey insofar as you get something out of it, right? You're going to do everything your parents want. Your room will be, will be pristine and clean so that they'll take you to the mall next weekend, so that they'll get you the new video game. But that's not love. That's using. This is about obedience that's shaped by the goodness and glory of who Jesus is for you kids. What's interesting is that parents are, are, are addressed, uh, mothers and fathers. Uh, in a Greco-Roman family code, that would be very unique. It would just be to the, to the patriarch. But of course, Paul is Jewish. And so you go to the Hebrew Bible and, and the mother is always just as much uh, a, an authority figure in the lives of her kids, right? Moms are authorities to be obeyed. And yet notice that Paul doesn't address moms. He addresses dads. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Dads, I think this means that you and I have a unique role. I think there's a reason why Paul calls out dads. I think we see this in just general sociology when you look at the, the rates of, 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 of poverty and, and education. Fathers have an outsized role in the relative numbers having to do with those kinds of things. In, in religious sociology, if a father believes and is devout, they have an outsized importance on whether or not the children continue in the faith in subsequent generations. I think we're something of parables of the father's love. The gap of fathers, I think, is always to reduce the chasm between who we are and, and who God the father is, right? The love of the father and our love. And the goal of the Christian father is to reduce that chasm as much as possible. Now, some of you have really wide chasms, right? That's been your experience is, is to confess this God as Father, and you've only had a terrible example of an earthly father, but an, so much of your story also is that God is the cycle breaker, isn't he? 
is that God doesn't leave the chasm this wide, but in the next generation, out of pure mercy, that becomes smaller and smaller. It will always be there, right? Even the best of fathers, it will always be there. But the prayer, I think, of dads should be, can that be small? Can there not be culture shock when they read of God in their Bibles? We did a men's book study years ago on a book, which I still really love, called Being Dad, uh, by this Lutheran guy named Scott Keith. And he talks about a dad is the mouthpiece of grace in the home. A dad is the voice of absolution for our kids. We have this voice that carries uniquely significant weight in the lives of our kids. The words we use matter. The tone we use matters. And Paul warns us here that there is a way of using that unique role, that outsized importance, which can be devastating to your children. You can discourage them. We've all done this. We've all brought down the hammer. We've all used shame as a tool, not because we wanted to do something for their good, but because we are so sick of them messing up. Doesn't mean don't discipline them. It means model your fathering after the better father in heaven that you have too. Do so in a way that reflects our heavenly father. Let's keep moving. That's family life in the name. Let's go to work life in the name. Now, out of all the relationships Paul brings up here, this one is, this one is different, right? Uh, marriage, family, that's all ordained by God. It's a, it's a foundational uh, relationship. That's the building blocks of society is marriage and family and children. Greco-Roman slavery is not one of those goods. Now, conditions of slavery at this time in Colossae, uh, they're complicated. That's the word I'd want us to use for it. It's complicated. I've heard way too many uh, messages from Christians who want us to believe that slavery in the first century was not that big of a deal. That is wrong. Slavery is slavery is slavery. I always want to ask those people, well, would you want to be a slave? Even back then, the answer should always be no. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, if you can get freedom, go get it. Slavery is not a good, but it existed. Now, by and large, it was a lot closer to our idea of indentured servanthood. So slaves could earn their way out of debt by being an indentured servant. And oftentimes, this did happen where it was such a good experience that even when the slave was freed, they attached themselves back to that family because there was no better economic prospect. That's a huge difference from the slavery practice in this country, isn't it? man-stealing, the idea of separating families and sending them to different slave owners as if that can be justified from Scripture. So slavery is complicated, but there were still mines and fields where slaves didn't live very long because it was a cruel existence. Slaves could be doctors, they could be teachers, but it was still slavery. So how does Paul speak to slavery? He never condones it. Again, 1 Corinthians 7, if you can be free, be free. In the, book of, in the book of Philemon, he says, welcome back Onesimus as a brother. If he has debts, charge them to my account, Paul says. But we should still do a double take when anyone says slavery isn't that bad. It was. Again, Paul never condones it. Paul, who has no societal power, he has no voice status. Uh, it's, it's been said that, that Paul could speak against slavery in the Roman world uh, in the same way he could speak against the steam engine. What would his voice matter in the long run? Instead, Paul frames this discussion under the lordship of Jesus. Slaves and masters all have one true master. Slaves are called to work sincerely fearing the Lord. Ultimately, it's Jesus you're serving. And masters are to treat them justly and fairly, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. 
Now, what does this mean for us? Again, while maintaining that we, we are not really in an analogy of slaves and enslavers, this, of course, has a legitimate application to the workplace. All of us have the opportunity in our particular callings to work as unto the Lord. To know that even in our everyday mundane work that we engage in, we are to do it for the Lord. And so we can think, how might my approach be different if I believed this? If I believed that my identity didn't have to come from work. If I believe that instead of building up that bitterness and resentment, I can work as unto the Lord Jesus. If you're an employer, to care for your employees justly and fairly, to to, to pay a fair wage, to not exploit your workers, to care about their families because Jesus cares about their families and not just the bottom line. And why? What's the reason? Because you know the way your master treats you. Now, the common theme that I think we can wrap through all of these, especially in this idea of a Christian household code, especially when it comes to those who have power, is that we are modeling it after what God has done for us. Husbands, love your brides like Jesus loves his bride. Fathers, love your children with a love that reflects your heavenly father. Masters, remember the way your master treats you. In other words, we do everyday life out of our new life in Christ in all of our relationships. All right, that's a lot here. There, there's so much more that could be said. I, I, I think I barely scratched the surface, mainly because none of this is easy, right? Relationships are wonderful, but they're incredibly hard. Marriage is a gift from God, and yet it can be really, really hard. Children are incredible gifts from the Lord, and they can be really, really hard. To have work is good, and it is dignifying, and, and yet we can feel stuck in work too, can't we? And we can feel beat down by work. It's hard as well. And so it's maybe easy to read a passage like this and see all of our failures, isn't it? We see all of our failures, all of the struggle of marriage and and family life. And if you feel that struggle, can I just be transparent for a second? How do you think I felt writing this thing? Right? Like my kids are here this morning and they're here and and they have a father that has provoked them plenty. Uh, a, A wife who hasn't always been loved well. Isn't that our experience here in this room, right? is that we read this and it's easy to feel all of this failure. And so the final thing I want to say, because I need to hear this word too, is what does Jesus say to us in this experience? I think it's to remember that our fullness isn't found in these relationships. Your spouse is not the Christ. And you are not the Christ to your spouse. Your children cannot be the source of your ultimate joy and hope. You will crush them. They will be crushed. Kids, you need to remember that that your your parents are sinners who need Jesus as much as anybody. Remember, fullness isn't found in any of these relationships. Instead, remember the fullness that you have in Jesus. Remember married couples of the bridegroom who lays down his life for his bride. Remember the love of the father that is yours. Remember your master who is so kind to you. Remember what Jesus has done for you, especially when you're confronted with this failure, right? The the goal is to leave this place in these relationships empowered by the gospel because we remember that all of our sins have been forgiven and so let our homes be places where forgiveness reigns. Your failures in these relationships have been forgiven. Live out of that. Your debt has been canceled by your Savior. That written code that stood against you, and I'll say the written code in this particular perspective is that you are a a failure 
as a, as a parent and as a child and as a sibling and, and as a husband and as a wife, that written code that stands against you, it's, it's been taken by Jesus. And he's given you a better name. And so friends, don't, don't lose sight of, of remember, the, remember the air travel, right? We're landing the plane, but don't forget the glorious things that we saw from 10,000 feet, that you have been raised with Jesus, even in these everyday relationships, your identity is secure in him. You have a new power at work in you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you, even doing the tasks that you have been called to do. Friends, don't forget the Lord has begun a good work in you, and he will be faithful to bring it to completion. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we give you all praise and glory for your work of redemption in our lives, those those glorious truths of, of your work that you would be all in all. And yet we're also grateful that you are working that glorious reality even into our most mundane corners of life. And so, Lord, I pray for the marriages that are represented in this room, that they would have an aroma of the gospel. I pray for the the, the parents and children who are represented in this room. I pray that our homes would be places of uh, repentance and forgiveness and encouragement in the gospel, that we would live our homes as trying to please Jesus. What, what a gift that is, is to know that we work to please someone who is already pleased in us. Not seeking to earn the approval, but the approval given to us by his grace. Lord, as we, as we turn uh, our calendars to Monday and think about the jobs that we go into, uh, the, the, the very manifold post-fall realities of, of, of work that, that should be life-giving and, and dignifying, and yet so often feels kind of soul-sucking and feel so hard, would you give us the encouragement as if we were working for you? Lord, for those who have responsibility over others to to remember and to work out of the wonderful news of having you as our master. Lord, would you work those realities? Would you form Christ in us? Any place that we are called. For those who aren't uh, spouses, for those who, who don't have children and, and maybe who aren't parents, for, for those who don't have the, the, the context of, of work to go into, Lord, what are the realities that we can live out of our union with Christ? Being those with words of, 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 of gospel goodness and forgiveness, of those who are seeking to embody Jesus in every place that you have called us. Lord, would you help us to see that and give us so much encouragement and joy as we go amongst our callings. Lord, we give you all the the thanks and praise and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.